Chapter 20, The Historical Return of the Hebrew Messiah. It seems almost redundant to even address this subject, considering Christianity's belief that when we die, we go to be with the Messiah in heaven, or of course the other way. But if we do go to be with the Messiah when we die, what's the point of fostering some pointless doctrine of his return? Unfortunately, there are just too many scriptures speaking of his return for the subject to be completely ignored. But this raises a large and rather obvious question. If the Messiah didn't return to save his disciples in the first century, that is, after directly promising them he would uh, to their faces, why should anyone believe he's coming to save anyone now? That Christianity has been forced to teach a redundant second coming, even though their basic doctrines negate the necessary of such a return. Considering Christianity's doctrine of a humanity's immortal soul and going to live in heaven with Jesus or hell when they die, what is the point? Yet, how amazing the number of preachers and teachers who teach the return of the Messiah in our time, even predicting exactly when, but obviously they've all been dead wrong. Pun intended. So how can we be so sure we have the truth in this matter either? It says in 2 Thessalonians 2.10, And with all unrighteous deception among those who perish, because they did not receive the love of the truth, that they might be saved, and for this reason God will send them strong delusion that they should believe the lie. We find scriptures all through the New Testament where the Messiah and the apostles proclaiming his return was going to happen to them in their lifetime. So why do most, if not all, Christian churches today teach the Messiah's prophecies were not written for those people back then, but for some people 2,000 years in the future? The great apostles such as Peter, John, James, and even Paul all clearly believed and taught the Messiah's return would occur in their generation. In order for Christianity's conclusions to stand, we have to accept that the teachings of all those giants of spirituality were either wrong or deceptive as to when and for whom their preaching was intended. Much has happened in the last 2,000 years, and you can be assured that that period of history is not referred to as the Dark Ages for no reason. It was labeled not, it was certainly not labeled dark due to the great enlightenment and truth. The truth is, those years were quite literally dark ages because mankind was plunged into and kept in spiritual darkness even until today. But if we allow the scriptures to speak for themselves, translation problems notwithstanding, and rein in our traditional conclusions, the scriptures reveal astounding and even shocking truth concerning the Messiah's return. We'll begin investigating this matter by examining a couple key issues that severely hinder true understanding of scripture and why so many sincere people have been so sincerely misled and wrong to such an unfortunate and wrong conclusion. The greatest of these, of course, is simply the failure to pay attention to whom the speaking is literally directed and to resist the temptation to insert ourselves into a scripture or position where we simply don't belong. Just because a scripture is written in first person, why would we foolishly assume it's directly or even indirectly speaking to us? That said, would we read a history book and be foolish enough to assume any first-person language is speaking directly to us? That said, let's read what 2 Timothy 2.15 admonishes. There it says, Be diligent to present yourself approved to God, or Yahweh, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. 
This scripture speaks of dividing or separating the word of truth. When you divide something, you separate it into parts or places for different purposes and obviously different people, right? Why would we find the word dividing here if it only means to rearrange? Isn't the division of which Timothy speaks there telling us certain scriptures are intended for different people and times, like exactly for whom the prophecies Yeshua gave were intended? One good example of scriptures being written for different people and purposes are the commands Yahweh gave the high priests as well as the Levites and priests. They were given completely different instructions than the common people, women and of course Gentiles. In fact, Yahweh's dwelling place, bad, badly translated Holy of Holies, in the temple could only be entered by the high priest and then only once a year. Anyone else going in would die. Again, the high priest was given one set of instructions or laws while a different set of instructions was given to the priesthood and still others for the people. For example, outside Yahweh's dwelling place was a designated courtyard called the Court of the Priests where no common Israelite was allowed to enter. King Uzziah discovered the, real, the reality of the hard, way, the hard way when he thought he was important enough to assume the role of a priest in the temple. Consequently, he was stuck with leprosy for his self-righteous arrogance. You find that in Second Chronicles 26. Then outside the court of the priests was an area called the court of Israel where no Gentile could enter. Clearly, the Torah commands were not written as a one-size-fits-all. Yahweh has a plan which he's working out in his way and in his time, in spite of what we believe or do. Again, as we read these scriptures, think exactly who's being addressed and to whom is being spoken, and forsake this assumption that Yeshua and his apostles are speaking to us some 2,000 years in the future. Matthew 24, for instance, clearly shows us the Hebrew Messiah, Yeshua, was privately addressing his disciples, that is, face to face. In reading the apocalyptic discourses in Matthew 24 and Luke 21, we find Yeshua personally answering his disciples' questions as to when the destruction of the temple would occur, as well as the end of the age, which of course included his return. The following is a short sampling from Matthew 24, where again, Yeshua is privately addressing and directing directly answering the questions of his disciples just as they asked him. Notice the plethora of personal pronouns Yeshua uses. He says, Take heed that no one deceives you. Again, remember, he's talking to his disciples face to face. See that you are not troubled, for all these things must come to pass. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, then they will deliver you up to tribulation. Pray that your flight be not on the Sabbath. Again, remember, he's talking to his disciples, answering their questions they had just asked him. Well, let's continue in Matthew 24 again where he says, So when you also see all these things, you know that it is near, that is, his return. Watch therefore and pray that you may be counted worthy to escape all these things that will come to pass and to stand before the Son of Man. He ends that discourse with verse 33 where he says, Assuredly, I say to you, again, who is he talking to? His disciples. I say to you, to their faces, this generation will by no means pass away till all these things are fulfilled. That is the things he just told them, which included his return. <clears throat> to conclude, he was speaking over their heads to a generation thousands of years in the future, 
After seeing his prediction of the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem come to fruition in 70 AD, makes his not returning in the first century a complete absurdity. Let's take a look at a related issue in a statement the Messiah made to his disciples in John 8.51. He says there, Most assuredly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he shall never see or taste death. Was ever uttered a more loaded statement? But it does make one wonder, was he speaking the truth? If so, we also must ask, did any of his disciples or apostles keep his word? If they did, and Yeshua was not lying, they would not have died, right? On the other hand, if all of Yeshua's apostles died, which Christian tradition teaches or tells us, it means none of them kept Yeshua's word or Yahweh's word. Unfortunately, that conclusion paints a pretty bleak picture for us. After all, if Yeshua's personally chosen apostles couldn't keep his word, what hope have we? Maybe an even better question to ask is, why would Yeshua lead them on that way if keeping his word was impossible? What kind of Messiah would play such deceitful games with his disciples? Well, not the kind of Messiah I would accept and associate with, I can assure you. But there's a third option, which of course was that Yeshua was not lying and returned for his disciples in their generation. Just as he promised, by the way. It wasn't just Yeshua who made shocking statements, unbelievable to most, especially Christians, but his apostles as well. Another privately interpreted scripture along these lines is found in John 21:22, where Yeshua tells Peter, just before his ascension, if I will that he, that is John, remain alive, quote-unquote, till I come, what is that to you? Another amazing statement, but as usual, it's rationalized away as saying Yeshua had the power if he wanted to keep John alive until his return, but then John, according to church tradition, grew old and died anyway, leaving us wondering why, what Yeshua's point for telling Peter that was. Still, another scripture in Matthew 26:64 was Yeshua telling the high priest Caiaphas, again, not us, but Caiaphas, It is as you said, nevertheless, I say to you, hereafter you, that is Caiaphas, will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming on the clouds of heaven. The question once again was, Yeshua being cryptic and deceptive with this man? Did the Messiah really tell Caiaphas that knowing he would be dead some 2,000 years before his return and wouldn't know the difference? That said, did the high priest Caiaphas actually see Yeshua coming on the clouds of heaven and sitting at the right hand of the power in his lifetime? If not, what Yeshua said to him would have been nothing short of a lie. It's interesting to note, the only scriptural account of one of the twelve apostles allegedly being martyred was James, that is the brother of John, in Acts 12. But this verse doesn't actually prove it was the Apostle James, as there were two brothers of John named James. Are the martyrs taught by the church, uh, church or the, by the church true, or simply the product of church tradition? Is it possible history has been rearranged and or fabricated to suit the powers that were left? If we consider the many absurd teachings of the church, such as the world being flat, it really does prompt one to think twice, does it not? Should the church's history of false teachings have any bearing upon how much credence we should give them of the martyrdoms of the rest of the apostles? Regardless of what the truth actually is, Yeshua quipped 
the Apostle John would remain or live until his coming. But was he the only one? Well, it doesn't take much of a study of Yahweh to understand Yahweh is not the kind of God that requires the life sacrifice of his righteous ones. Of course, if they voluntarily give their lives, as Yeshua and Stephen did, he would not deny them. Again, we are given free moral agency. With that thought, let's read Yeshua's word in Matthew 16, 28. He says there, Assuredly, I say to you, that again, it's his disciples in the first century, there are some standing here who will not taste death till they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Again, if we're to take that scripture at face value, the only logical conclusion upon which to arrive is his coming had to have occurred in their generation. I realize at this juncture some will point to the transfiguration account in Mark 9 as proof his disciples saw his coming. But unfortunately, under honest, and I do say honest, examination, you see the so-called transfiguration had nothing to do with Yeshua's second coming. At the, the time of the transfiguration, he had not left. It was simply him conversing with Moses and Elijah, who again also had never died. And if a person is put stock in the teachings of the 13th Apostle Paul, we find he also believed and taught Yeshua was returning in his generation as well. He said, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep. We shall not all sleep, that is, die. But we, that is, those he was speaking to in Corinth, shall all be changed in a moment in a twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we, that is them, not us, shall be changed. We see that in 1 Corinthians 15, 51. Without a doubt, Paul believed what the other twelve apostles taught of the Messiah's return in their generation was further confirmation of Yeshua's words to his twelve. In fact, Paul twice more reiterates this same conclusion. He says, For this we say to you, by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. And then in 1 Thessalonians uh, 4.15, Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air at his return. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. Paul wasn't the only one to preach Yeshua's return in their generation. So did the chief apostle of the twelve, James. He says in chapter 5, verse 7, Therefore be patient, brethren, until the coming of Yeshua. See how the farmer awaits for the precious fruit of the earth, waiting patiently for it until it receives the early and latter rain. Again, James was telling the people to whom he was addressing, again, not people millennia later, to be patient until Yeshua's arrival, comparing their patience to that of a farmer waiting for his crops. Does a farmer really have to die while waiting to receive his crop? How silly! This allegory would be sheer nonsense if they had to wait for a couple thousand years. James is comparing their waiting of, to that of a farmer removes any doubt that it was shortly to happen. Plus we have the Apostle Peter's reinforcing this truth in 2 Peter 1.16. It says, Therefore we did not follow cunningly devised fables, they did not follow cunningly devised fables, when we made known to you the power and the coming that is in their generation of our Lord Yeshua, but were eyewitnesses. Peter was also assuring them their testimony of Yeshua's soon coming return was not a cunningly devised fable. 
It was apparently in the late 60s AD when everything was going south and people were losing faith, requiring Peter's reassurance that Yeshua's return was still imminent and the apostles had not been lying to them. Let's add Yeshua's statement in John 14.2 to Peter's. It says there, In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I surely would have told you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am there you may be also. Again, he's talking to his disciples, that he was going to go and prepare a place for them, and that he was coming again to receive them, so that wherever he was, they would be. Again, considering Yeshua's assurance to them, were they really supposed to believe that he wouldn't be returning for them for thousands of years? How absurd. He goes on to reinforce that statement in John 14, 28, where he says, You have heard me say to you, I'm going away and coming back to you. Again, he's talking to his disciples. If you loved me, you would rejoice because I said, I'm going to, my, to the Father, for my Father is greater than I. Again, he said he was coming back to them. How could anyone possibly conclude this meant a couple thousand years after they died? What a cruel hoax that would have been. Even further confirmation is found in Hebrews, where it says, For yet a little while, and he who is coming will come and not tarry. And we'll read further in 1 John 2.18, where it says, Little children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard, the Antichrist is coming, and even now many, and many Antichrists have come, by which we know that it is the last hour. And of course, we're talking 60s AD at this point. Was John really telling those people to their faces it was the last hour when the last hour was really some 2,400 lifetimes away? Seriously? If that plethora of scriptures isn't enough for good measure, let's add what two more of the great apostles, James and Peter, said starting in James. James said, You also be patient, establish your heart, for the coming of the Lord, that is Yeshua, is at hand. Don't forget, we were assured by Peter in 2 Peter 1.16, their preaching of Yeshua's soon coming return in their time was not a coming cunningly devised fable. If his coming wasn't for a couple thousand years, a cunningly devised fable is exactly what their teaching would have been. Unfortunately, Christians are still waiting for this Greek Messiah Jesus to show up, but all the scripture we just read are the words of a Hebrew Messiah, Yeshua, who did not lie. Again, Yeshua made it perfectly clear he was returning in his, in his disciples' generation, that is, the first century. As for this Jesus, a name which didn't exist until the 15th century, it is itself a lie and naturally lies to anyone who will listen.